0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Hamilton politicians are applying for federal money to deal with the impacts of climate change. Also, why do prisoners get shuffled around from different prisons? And Michael Cohen, lawyer and fixer to President Trump, has been sentenced to three years in jail. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today, on the Bill Kelly Show, on 900 CHML... Let's uh, talk about uh, some of the challenges that Hamilton City Council is going to be facing. This is before they even get into the nuts and bolts of the uh, 2019 budget. Hamilton politicians have decided to apply for funding under a federal disaster program uh, because of damage that was caused by climate change. I, I know there are some elected officials that don't even believe in climate change, but all you need to do is walk along the waterfront trail, and I think you get a pretty good example of what's going on. Joining us to talk about the uh, initiative is uh, Chad Collins. He is the Councillor, of course, for Ward 5 in the east end of the city. Uh, Chad, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us again today.
1: Thanks for having me on, Bill.
0: Let's talk a little bit about this program, first of all, this federal program, and then we'll get to, to the city's, uh, well, request, I guess, is really what this comes down to.
1: Sure. Yeah, the federal uh, government, I believe it was either earlier this year or late in 2017, had announced a, uh, a program for municipalities, not-for-profits, and uh, all kinds of stakeholders to apply for funds to assist with significant weather-related events, and it's $2 billion over 10 years, and so the city certainly, as one of those agencies, would qualify for that funding. And uh, we made application. uh, As the election process was taking place, uh, staff were um, uh, compiling a report and a list of projects and uh, walked that report onto us yesterday, um, onto our agenda because there's a very tight timeline. I think it's January of 2019. And so with this being one of our only opportunities before the break to, uh, to have that passed along to the federal government, it was in front of us yesterday for consideration.
0: Are you comfortable with that time frame, Chad? I mean, you can recall a couple of years ago where the city missed the boat on a federal funding program because they didn't get the applications in on time.
1: Yeah, it's always a head-scratcher in terms of how sometimes it's almost the 11th hour and you have a gun at your head. But, um, you know, I, I was thankful that staff took the initiative to to, uh, to do it. I mean, if, had they waited until uh, the new council was sworn in and we were into the regular uh, committee schedule, we probably would have missed the deadline and an opportunity to take advantage of hundreds of millions of dollars that are being offered by the federal government. So I kudos to them, and I did thank them yesterday for taking the initiative and a very proactive approach to it.
0: Yeah, because it's kind of a no-brainer. I mean, why wait until the council's sworn in to say, hey, by the way, do you guys want a slice of this money? Of course you do.
1: Exactly, yeah. And there's no shortage, Bill. You've covered it extensively, as have others, in terms of the weather-related events that we've had here in Hamilton. And, you know, go back to 2009 when we had 7,000 homes, from one end of the city to the other that were affected by the, the flood event and we've seen similar flooding events um, in Burlington and Toronto and, and all across the country and in the world quite frankly um, we've had a multiple escarpment failures again you've covered that and talked to the, the ward councillors Yeah that's about, that's, that's, um,
0: that's the Claremont access
1: Yeah absolutely and we, we continue to experience them year after year as we see these uh, you know these uh, freeze and thaw cycles that uh, we haven't been accustomed to and, and that has an impact on not just the escarpment, but you've covered the the fact that we've had uh, private homes that were slipping into some of our creeks and natural uh, open uh, space areas. Um, we had, uh, of course, a terrible year uh, just over a year ago with high lake levels, lake levels that we haven't seen in 100 years. And, of course, you just mentioned at the opening of your show that uh, in addition to some of the problems that the high lake levels caused in terms of erosion along The Lake Shore and the West Harbour. It's impacted some of our recreational areas in terms of breaking up our trails and uh, and disrupting those services where people have enjoyed recreational amenities, not just in the East End but in the West Harbour as well. So there's no shortage of projects to point to and examples of where local uh, where climate change has had an impact on local infrastructure. Much of that public, and of course we know that residents have been hit just as hard or harder, depending on what neighborhood you live in, with their own investments and that being you know the homes that they live in.
0: I, I don't know if anybody's been down. It's a little chilly, I guess, but some people still use the waterfront trail on a pretty regular basis, no matter what the weather is. but the 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 breakup that has occurred down there, Chad, it's just tragic.
1: it is in in both areas. and um yeah, east, and, yeah
0: east and west
1: yeah, and and it's just it's the wave action that's coming in. and as the as the lake gets higher, then obviously that wave action is going further inland. And we never would have anticipated uh, those kinds of lake levels, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago when these amenities were constructed. And I, I think it goes back to a theme of, you know, when our my grandparents and my great-grandparents' generation were, were building, you know, cities like Hamilton and, and, and other small towns and, and areas across the country uh, 100 or even 150 years ago, um, you know, they were, they were building the infrastructure for municipalities. Um, to accommodate weather events that they were accustomed to seeing on a regular basis. Of course, you know, those regulations obviously get a little bit more formal over time. And as we see the introduction and and, um, and the creation of conservation authorities, obviously municipal, federal, and provincial governments then start to, to change uh, infrastructure requirements over time and, and regulations obviously improve over time. Uh, but even with modern regulations that we've seen, and I, you know, I'd say modern as in you know, through the 50s, 60s, and beyond, as conservation authorities have more power and more teeth in terms of regulation, uh, and obviously building codes change, and, and all, all codes change over time. Even with the modern codes that we have, we've never experienced weather events like we have over the last decade in particular. And so these funds that the, the federal government uh, are offering municipalities and other stakeholders will go a long way to try to correct some of those um, uh, decisions that have been made in the past, Uh, again, with the best of intentions and not understanding what was on the horizon for anyone. Um, And of course, it allows us to take a proactive rather than a reactive approach. We know that these events are going to continue to happen. So knowing that that's the case, and that these events are here to stay, and they're not just one-offs, municipalities and other levels of government and other stakeholders need to be prepared for the worst. And, And these investments will help us mitigate, they won't prevent them, but will help us mitigate those interruptions, service interruptions, damage to public and private property in the
0: future. I guess part of the challenge here, and I, I get this from some of the conversations I've had with Dan McKinnon, who's your public works manager, of course, mm-hmm. is is when you look at things like, I guess, two of the most glaring ones that we just talked about, the waterfront trail and, and even the Claremont Access, the wall on the Claremont mm-hmm. uh, Those you can't just repair those. I mean, because of what's going on right now, basically, you're talking about a redesign of these things.
1: I believe so, and we haven't. We have yet to see the shoreline report that was referenced in in the um, in yesterday's report to the committee. We did ask our staff to go back uh, to go off and hire a, a, a an engineer, coastal engineer. There's only a couple of experts in the province, and so we hired Mr. Milo Sturm, who's uh, who's Canadian, renowned as as an expert in terms of wave action and that. So. The, the report is in, council's yet to see it, but the price tag was in the $30 million range. And as you said, Bill, and you alluded to, you know, we've almost put band-aids on the escarpment to make, to ensure that it's safe for the public to use from, a, uh, in their vehicles. And, um, and I think we're going to see a more comprehensive report in the future that says, you know, to, to really make substantive changes to ensure that we're not experiencing these slides, uh, every spring, you know, there's some major investments that are required. And to date, to be clear, We've, we've either repaired or upgraded our infrastructure locally entirely on the municipality's dime. And, and so all of the costs have been borne by local taxpayers, and we've long criticized the province and the federal government to be a partner in some of these planning exercises and infrastructure upgrades. And so yesterday's, or the announcement earlier this year or last year, was a welcome surprise to us in terms of now they're, they're, they understand, I think, the implications of climate change and what it means to municipalities. And and they're at the table, and so I can only hope that our application that we're putting in it's for uh, $63 million over the next decade, I can only hope that almost all of that or a good portion of that will be funded uh, through that program.
0: Well, I was going to ask you about that, because an awful lot of programs that the federal and provincial government, uh, when they decide to actually open some money up, is it, usually done on a one-third, one-third, one-third basis. Uh, how much mm-hmm. money is the city going to have to kick in for this?
1: The required to put in 60%, so okay, it's nice so, to see so. the province at the table at some point in time. I don't see that uh, in, in the foreseeable future, but at this point in time, I think it's a 60 40 split between the, between the federal government and municipality.
0: So, this is still going to be a hit for Hamilton taxpayers then?
1: It's a huge hit. Uh, the, I, I guess the only um, upside to the discussion that we're having is that many of the projects that um, w- we will submit to the federal government are already in our 10 year capital plan. And so, we've already planned for infrastructure upgrades. We've undertaken studies over the last uh, five to ten years in almost all neighborhoods. You know, you know, and as I scan through the report, I'm looking at, um, you know, Rosedale, Churchill Park, Ancaster, Aberdeen, uh, the Escarpment, and so uh, obviously the Beach Strip and, and the West Harbour area. So it's every almost every neighborhood or every area or ward of the city is a part of this application process. And again, I can only and, and most of those projects are entertaining your capital plan. So to have the federal government then make an investment of up to 40% into some or all of those projects will be a welcome relief, and it'll allow us then to start to divert some of those funds from that we currently have planned at 100% to other infrastructure upgrades across the city that are non-storm related or um, uh, related to uh, you know climate change.
0: Do you ever get this uh, sense of frustration, Chad, that uh, it's, it's like the little Dutch boy that keeps trying to put his finger to pl- plug the holes in the, <laughs> the dike? As soon as you go to fix one project, something else falls apart. and it's, it's all because of the same thing, really, but you don't know where it's going to hit next.
1: It really is, and you know what, Bill? You know, in, in the late 2000s, as we started to experience those, you know, everyone referenced them as 100-year storms, and we would always see these storms every 100 years, and they seemed to be happening every other week. I mean, it just became... It became almost laughable that we were using that hundred-year storm uh, terminology or phrase because it just it didn't seem to uh, apply appropriately uh, as we referenced it uh, year over year over year. And then had you said to me, you know, if ten years ago that we'd also be experiencing record lake levels and it'd be something we'd need to be concerned about on an annual basis, I'd say, geez, well, we have no history of that over the last hundred years. We certainly had f- flooding issues on the beach in terms of. Uh, back in the 70s, where we had some periods of high high water levels, but nothing like we experienced a few years ago. And so with this conversation, I'm almost certain that based on past experience, we're going to identify additional projects as time goes on, and as we continue to see weather events impact different areas of the city. And it'll just mean a growing list of infrastructure requirements that we're forced to um, deal with as a result of climate change. And I can only hope that our Provincial and federal partners will be there at the table with us to discuss how we deal with them.
0: Did you get any sense from staff yesterday about uh, about the chances uh, of how much of this actually you're going to get? I know you've made the application uh, for about $63 million, but uh, we're not the only city experiencing this right now. There's only so much money in the pot, as far as I understand, so there's obviously going to be an evaluation, I would think, at the federal level.
1: Yeah, and I, there's no indication yet in terms of what we're in store for. Um, and as you said, I, I think the requests will far out out, uh, strip the the amount of money that's available to municipalities over ten years, and it's two they, billion. They always do, don't they? Absolutely, and of course, you know, governments change, and so as we see, one government makes it a priority. We don't know with the government, and there will be another one that follows this. Um, you know, there, we don't know how those priorities will change and how those monies or that pot of, of funds will be then affected by a change in government and and their own priorities that they bring to the table. And, and so we're just hopeful that in the early stages and early days of its offering that we're going to be in store for something and that it's going to gel with something that's now in our 10-year capital
0: plan. Well, let's bring up one of your greatest hits. Uh, and by that, I mean council, and that's about sustainable funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here's another example of this. I mean, it's great that this money is going to be available, but it, this is a problem that's not going to go away. And and the fact is, is that, as you say, with a change of government, uh, this thing could dry up in no time. Well, you saw that just a couple of months ago when the province mm-hmm. killed the cap-and-trade program and all that right. infrastructure repair money that was supposed to come your way, gone. And, and, that's, and, that's that's one right. that's, that's of the challenges that, you, that every council faces these days.
1: No, you're right. And so we're hoping for the best but expecting the worst most days. And, um, and, and that's why we have a 10-year capital budget process. And, and so we have been left to our own devices over the last decade. We have applied for emergency relief. I think you covered it extensively, Bill. Where we we had those seven thousand homes that were flooded, we applied to the province, and we were told that we weren't we didn't qualify. Yet, you know, communities like Peterborough were funded when they they had their massive flood. Burlington received relief when they had their their flood a, a few short years later, and so it almost seemed to be almost pork barrel politics in terms of if, you know if they had support in the area, they were offering municipality support, and it shouldn't be that way. It should be a very clear. Uh, a process that's above board and so i can only hope that uh, you know they see the merit in our application and that funds are going to flow away. if it doesn't we're going to continue to to fund it through our own capital budget process it'll be much tougher obviously um, if we're doing it alone and we have a history of making key strategic investments and year-over-year investments and so we were one of the first municipalities in the country to offer the backwater valve to residential homeowners we still have that program today I would encourage, encourage residents to contact their counselor or visit the city's website if you feel that um, your house uh, is in need of a backwater valve. And, um, and there are other programs and projects that we have. And so we're, we're trudging along. We know what's on the horizon as it relates to climate change. We're not ignoring it, as you mentioned, in terms of you know, there's still deniers out there in terms of, you know, this is just a temporary thing. And, and um, we've seen this before in, in human history. We definitely haven't. And I don't think the worst is, is, is um, upon us yet and unfortunately as uh, the weather changes uh, we will have to continue to find ways not not just in terms of dealing with it from an infrastructure perspective but also finding creative ways to finance it because there's only so much capacity within the community to be able to afford some of these investments, above and beyond all the other needs that the municipality has.
0: Well, and again, I'd love to see. I know we got just about out of time here, but I'd love to see the province come to the table here. Uh, gets, now, maybe not this government, but at least the previous government mm-hmm. at least recognized that there's a project going out right outside our window here on the four hundred three road. It's at, uh, you know, as I look down the hill here, and it's a, it's again, it's a culvert reorganization and reconstruction because of the flooding that's occurring. So yep. they they recognize it, and they got, look at you. Got to understand that the cities are going through the same thing too, and there's there's got to be a coordinated effort here
1: absolutely. and And the more uh, stakeholders at the table, and it's not just governments, you know we've we've obviously had the assistance of local entities like Environment Hamilton and Green Venture, all kinds of people at the table providing their expertise. And of course, those people are also uh, lobbying provincial and federal governments for resources locally. And so it's a joint effort. It's a community effort. and uh, and I don't think there's any area of the city that's been unaffected by it uh, you know to date, and so I can only hope again Bill, that. They see merit in our application, and at some point in time over the next year or two, some or all of the $63 million that we've asked for will be granted and will be able to funneled into this community to make sound investments.
0: Good luck. Hope it works for you. Thanks, Bill. Thanks so talk much. To
1: you. Have a Merry Christmas to you and Rebecca and your family.
0: And you too. Thanks so much, Chad. Uh, Ward care. 5 Councillor Chad Collins, of course, uh, with the city trying to uh, get a piece of that money that uh, the federal government's made available for a number of different projects, and you see them as you walk around and drive around the city that uh, it's work that needs to be done. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Why do criminals get shuffled around to different prisons? Uh, there was public outcry, of course, a couple of months ago, when uh, Terry Lynn McClintock was uh, moved to a healing lodge out in Saskatchewan uh, from her maximum security prison. Uh, the outrage was uh, palpable, obviously. The uh, security minister, uh, Ralph Goodell, uh, did a review. Actually, he ordered a review from uh, the justice system, and uh, she has since been returned Uh, to a maximum security situation. But uh, on the heels of that, it came news this week that uh, her partner in that murder uh, has also been transferred. His name is Michael Rafferty, of course, and he also was convicted of uh, murder, kidnapping and murder, sexually assaulting and murdering uh, Tori Stafford. And uh, Stafford's dad, of course, uh, Rodney Stafford, is outraged by this, as a number of other people are, and I'm sure you've seen some of the op-ed pieces and a number of different posts on social media saying how could they do this, what's the government doing, Uh, I I think there's an awful lot of misunderstanding about what's going on here, why it's going on, and and the penal system in general. Uh, To clarify a lot of this, I'd like to bring uh, Todd White into the conversation, criminal lawyer and barrister in Toronto, and uh, always a welcome guest on the program. Todd, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us again. Thank you, Bill. Nice to be with you. I I think we all share the outrage or understand the outrage about what happened, obviously. This is a heinous, terrible crime. Uh, The people have been convicted. They've been put in, in jail. Uh, and 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 we've seen the outrage that's gone on here. But maybe you could just back up a little bit, Todd, and explain there is a system, and there there is a methodology to this. and and I, I think an awful lot of the outrage may be warranted, but maybe misplaced.
2: I, I think the outrage over the Aboriginal healing lodges may be well placed, but I don't think the classification from maximum security to medium security um, has any basis in reality at all. Um, when you're sentenced to prison, That's your punishment. You're not sent there uh, for further punishment. You're sent there as punishment. And a transfer from maximum security to medium security happens all the time. It's simply a move down the security risk ladder. It means that the uh, offender um, meets all the institutional requirements and is not an escape risk. That's what it means. Some people go to prison and they say, I'm here to do my time for life. And so they sit there, read a book, and keep to themselves, get into no trouble, no escape attempts, no drugs, no fighting. So they don't need as many guards to watch them. They are sent to a medium security uh, penitentiary. But it's still a pen, it's still a penitentiary. Um, There are a lot more inmates in medium security. Um, It's just less security guards and a few more options. You get counseling if you need it or you want it. And there may be more opportunity to, to work, for example, at medium security penitentiaries uh, you can get a job. You don't really earn much money, but you can work during the day while inside a penitentiary.
0: I, I understand that there's a possibility of visits, but I mean, that happens in maximum security too, doesn't it? not? Correct. I think a lot of people are trying to draw a distinction, and I, I, I think if we use the phrase here, Todd, but m- you know, uh, minimum security or minimum se- medium security, people have this idea of, uh, of you know, the motel, you know, where you can play golf and the- all this sort of thing. I mean, we've seen that that characterized in movies, et cetera. But that, I, I think that's that's probably a false characterization, is it not?
2: It's 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 false, except in the states, there are actually penitentiaries where wealthy people get sent to minimum security institutions. And it's like going to a golf and country club. And they may be cut off from the rest of the world, but their facilities are spectacular. But not in Canada. Penitentiaries are penitentiaries across the country.
0: And and there is still incarceration, there are still high walls, there are still guards. Correct.
2: Correct. And your, your freedom is completely gone. They tell you when to shower, they tell you when to eat. They say you can go in the yard with their other prisoners for an hour. It's still penitentiary. And you're not leaving.
0: So again, for those who are trying to get this through their heads as to what this is looking like, uh, with a fair characterization, if I can just borrow from art for a second, I mean, you remember uh, obviously the movie Shawshank Redemption, uh, and and that was, I guess, a minimum security prison. I mean, people, there's jail; they're in jail. The big walls, there are guards, and everything else. But at the same time, they're part of the prison population. They're not segregated as you would be in maximum security. Correct. So it's it's still punishment.
2: Absolutely. Your, your liberty is completely restrained. Um, you just don't need as many guards to, to watch you. That's all.
0: So how is that determination made? Is there an evaluation process on an ongoing basis, or do you apply for this? How, how does that work?
2: Um, as soon as anyone's sent to the penitentiary, they're automatically sent to maximum security. And then depending upon the offense and your background, your criminal record, and how you do in your first number of months, you can be reclassified. It seems that these people... Spent at least six years before they were. One of them was sent to medium security, which is almost the same, but the one sent to the Aboriginal Lodge, very, very different. I have a problem with that one.
0: I think a lot of people do <coughs> as to why that even happened in the first place. And obviously, upon review, uh, that uh, that was granted, but uh, uh, and again, let me let me address a couple of other things. And I'm not trying to, you know, uh, get on anybody's back, nor am I trying to point the accusing finger at anybody. But invariably, when something like this happens, uh, Todd, and people get outraged, they say, "Well, what's the government doing?" Uh, this has very little to do with the government, if anything.
2: Correct. It, 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 our laws are the laws, and the penitentiary system has their their rules and regulations that have been passed and they've been following for many many years. Um, and classification of offenders is something that's been going on since Canada first existed, and it's something that the prison systems do, and, um, you know, the, the internal processes that have worked pretty well. Except for the Aboriginal lodges, there's a lot of problems with those.
0: And and she was not the only one. McClinic is not the only one who's actually abused that system. And, and I know that as as we learned a little more about that, we heard about escapes and a number of other things that people were, were being you know given that, that opportunity. And that that's obviously something I think they're going to have to reevaluate.
2: Yeah, but, because uh, these, these lodges, most of them are minimum security, so there's very little security, um, and it's in a, an area where you can sort of wander off the property. No gates, no fences, that kind of stuff not usually reserved for people convicted of murder.
0: Well, that's what I found bizarre about that, especially the one in which she was placed, because you're absolutely right, that was the characterization. Uh, You can just wander away, and they say, well, you're far away from any other community. Well, yeah, there are roads, though, and you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, so it, it just seemed rather odd that somebody that, uh, committing a crime of that magnitude would be allowed to actually uh, be placed in a situation like that. But that's not the case with uh, uh, with the, the, the one that we're talking about now, and in, in the case of uh, of what's happening with uh, the other individual, of course, with Michael Rafferty, he's he's still in prison. Uh, people Correct. have to understand that he's he's there and he's going to be there for a long time.
2: And and the the, the benefits that he gets for being in medium security is less prison guards and the opportunity to. To to work, so you, instead of sitting in your cell all day, you you know do certain jobs that penitentiaries have, and you get uh, you know token amounts of money to spend while you're in prison, but it's nothing like you see in the movies. It's still penitentiary.
0: What about uh, the, the, the feeling that some people have, and I'm sure you've heard this uh, in your travels uh, through the court system and the, and the judicial system, that said, look, this was such a heinous crime that, you know what, forget what, what the rules are. We want this guy locked, or that individual, locked in a cell 24-7 uh, with no interaction, no privileges of any kind.
2: That's impossible. That wouldn't, that's cruel and unusual punishment the courts have held. You can't keep someone locked up by themselves for the rest of their life. They'll go insane. And, it, and it's never happened anywhere.
0: But there have been incidents, actually, I guess, as we talk about this, Todd, where uh, there have been, I guess, cases of solitary confinement that have gone on much longer than they should have. And the courts have ruled against uh, the, the prisons in, in situations like that.
2: Correct. It, it's cruel and unusual punishment to keep someone in solitary confinement uh, for long periods of time. It can literally, you know, kill them.
0: So this is a system, and and everybody, no matter what kind of crime you've committed, no matter how heinous, no matter how horrific uh, the the act was, this is a system that uh, that it applies to everybody. Are there, can can there be exceptions to this? I mean, upon sentencing, can can uh, a, a judge or a jury recommend that you know, no, you you stay where you are? I, I'm thinking of the example of Paul Bernardo, for instance. I know he was classified as a dangerous offender. Is that a, a different set of circumstances?
2: No, he, he's, he's, he's in solitary confinement, sort of, yeah. um, for his own protection, um, because prisoners in penitentiaries have their own sort of justice system, and then anyone accused of hurting or let alone murdering uh, a woman or child um, will probably be killed by other inmates. So he's kept in protective custody by himself, so he won't get murdered, which is one of the reasons that Paul Bernardo many years ago, applied to be released into the general population because he wanted to die, I think.
0: Well, what about the situation of Michael Rafferty, then? I mean, this is a guy who obviously abducted a little girl and and murdered her. Uh, Would he not qualify in that same situation for that kind of treatment?
2: Uh, He should be, because it it would seem that his his life would be in jeopardy. But if he's sent to a medium security, um, then chances are he's not.
0: I find that odd.
2: It's very odd. But obviously, there's not been a problem.
0: Can we, when we have these, these outraged uh, individuals that, uh, that react to these sorts of things and these stories, uh, invariably what they say is, well, why wasn't the family of the victim notified about this? Is, is that a, a procedure that needs to be followed? Is that a courtesy, if in fact it, it does happen?
2: No, it, it's, it's, it, it's nothing to do with the sentence. He's still locked up in a federal penitentiary, you know, which cell he's in, what he's having for lunch, is, you know, none of the concern of the victims or the victim's family, or it's, you know, just procedure that goes on. It's not as if this guy's, you know, out on weekends or getting any special privileges that you would be shocked by.
0: And and this happens with other prisoners. I mean, you know, the the, the Clifford Olsons and and the other people guilty of heinous acts, I mean, they've been switched around from institution to institution.
2: Correct. And there are people who are convicted of murder, that may be in a minimum security prison after, you know, serving, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. They may be older. They've never tried to escape. And they've resolved themselves to doing their life sentence. So they're not a threat to anyone. They're not at risk of fleeing. So they can be sent to a minimum security prison. And they'll sit there and read 24 hours a day.
0: You mentioned something right off the top, Todd, that I think was, was maybe characterizing exactly what we need to, to talk about here, maybe the message going away from here. Going to prison is the punishment. You don't go to prison to be punished. Correct. That, that's an interesting distinction, but I think one that a lot of people fail to make.
2: Correct. The, the, the being in prison is the punishment. And I can tell you as a lawyer, um, when I go to, to jails or to prisons to visit clients, I hate it. I absolutely hate it. You can't get in without going through huge, you know, steel doors. And you don't have any personal contact. It's all buzzers and beeps and slams of metal. And you can't leave unless they let you. You better have your pass and your lawyer's card. It's your liberty that's taken away.
0: So he's uh, he's not sitting there right now saying, boy, I really put one over on the system.
2: No, absolutely not.
0: Uh, Todd, thank you so much for the clarification. Let's just say that I, I, as I read some of the the memes that I see in social media about this, and again, I, I say, I, I understand the outrage uh, that people are upset about this because of the nature of the crime uh, that was committed, but there is a system, and it's not as if we're trying to and, and, and this is not easy on criminals. I mean, as you mentioned, uh, you know, spend a day in jail uh, and Correct. and try to go through a prison system. Not, and and you you got to think of a better idea and understanding exactly what that's all about.
2: Correct. And they're serving time. Murderers serve the exact same time in the exact same places as people charged and convicted of fraud and drug trafficking, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they're all in the same place. The fact that someone committed murder uh, versus someone who, you know, committed a multi-million-dollar fraud, they're sitting in a penitentiary doing their time. I think it's just a misunderstanding by the Canadian public. They think that medium security means you know, golf courses and pools. Mm -hmm. It doesn't.
0: Not in this country.
2: Not in this country.
0: Todd, thank you so much for this today. I really appreciate the time. No problem. Todd White, of course, criminal lawyer and barrister in the city of Toronto. Uh, And again, that's not to justify this, but it's the system. and It goes on. I mean, the guy's still behind bars. He's still, you know, with 20-foot cement walls and prison guards that are armed, and on and on it goes. Just a different institution, that's all. Uh, And he'll be there for a long time.
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900
0: CHML. The other big story yesterday, of course, was uh, Michael Cohen, uh, the uh, fixer uh, for Donald Trump, his own pers- former, I do personal lawyer, the guy that said he'd take a bullet for Trump, uh, kind of changed his mind on that, uh, sentenced to three years yesterday in a uh, court in New York City uh, and says that loyalty was what led him to cover up uh, Trump's dirty deeds. And uh, also, by the way, the National Enquirer is implicated in this. And we're going to get into that in a couple of seconds. Joining us in studio to talk about this is our good friend Laura Babcock, president of Power Group Communications. i, I got to know, I know you, I've known you for years. <laughs> you, you, you didn't leave the front of the TV yesterday, did you?
3: I couldn't. You know, some days I'm working from home and... When those days happen and there happens to be incredible news <laughs> coming from England and coming from the U.S. and Canada everywhere else, uh, it's a good day to just have the TV on in the background the whole day. And what was so interesting yesterday is that even as people were trying to digest the sentencing of Michael Cohen, the when the AMI story came out and pretty much backed up everything that Cohen had said about those hush money payments – that's really significant. And the the best way that I could frame it after watching all of the news yesterday was that individually, you can look at any of these individual charges or these individual bits of testimony or these deals and say, well, I can counter that or I could argue that away. But it's the cumulative effect of it, right? It's, it, each of these people who are doing these deals against Trump that are rolling over on Trump, are all corroborating each other. They're backing each other's stories up, whether they're fully participating witnesses, whether they're partially participating, whether they're being kind of, you know, uh, the, the government has something on them and they have to come forward and tell the truth. Whatever's going on in whatever degree it's going on, Bill, the walls are closing in on Trump and his organization. And something else that I found fascinating is that in the past if somebody came out and said something definitively that was um, negative about Trump automatically you'd hear about threats of lawsuits and defamation suits and that was always the go-to right? Mm -hmm. That bully back thing. Well not only has he lost the guy who did that for him Michael Cohen, and David Pecker the head of the Inquirer who did the you know the catch and kill stories to get rid of stuff for him but I've heard people who know him who are high profile on major shows saying that Trump's organization is a criminal enterprise and that it is is based on laundering Russian funds. And there's been no pushback on that, and I've heard it multiple times. And so, obviously, I don't have first-hand knowledge of that, but the fact that that's not being countered, not even in tweets, just goes to show you that this is getting really serious for the Trump organization. They're running out of ways to shut this down.
0: Well, there's another red line that has been crossed, and, and that was, of course, the family finances, at which he said, mm-hmm. that was it. He, that's that's a no-go zone. Well, they're doing that, and they've been doing it for months, and he hasn't done anything about it, nor has he said anything about it. Yeah, I, and he, I'm I'm not suggesting this guy's giving up, because that's not what Trump does.
3: No, but how many fights can you fight at once? I mean, how many battles can you be engaged in at all the same time, right? It's coming at him from so many different places. So you have the Southern District of New York, which Trump cannot influence pardons on, right, because it's the state. And they're pretty tough, as we've seen, even with the sentencing recommendations on Cohen, because they said he wasn't fully telling them what they needed. You've got the Mueller investigation, which we've also seen has been extremely productive for a special counsel's presentation or or investigation. Uh, And it seems like stuff from that is coming up faster and faster now that we've had the midterms. And then you've got even today in the Washington court uh, in D.C., this this Russian... um, this woman who was influencing and, and working through the NRA on behalf of, of Russia. I mean, that's coming up. We don't even know what her guilty plea entails, other than a conspiracy charge. So how do you possibly fight all of this on all sides? And I think what was even maybe more damaging to Trump from a public narrative point of view, was the fact that he couldn't get his choice for chief of staff. That happened in the middle of all this. So as people are looking at all of these different stories and they're saying, okay, it's a lot, it's a lot, it's a lot. But the fact that someone wouldn't take that job, arguably the second most powerful job in Washington, uh, someone who was ambitious and had been courted for it and who had seemed to want it for a long time, Nick Ayers, the fact that he didn't take it, uh, I think sent a message to Trump land and to soft supporters of Trump, which there are, that we wait a second, he can't even get a good chief of staff. This guy might be going down.
0: Well, I mean, let's, who in their right mind is going to take that job right now? But uh, that's the
3: point. Given I mean, the history yeah. of, of who's right. been
0: there since Trump has been in power, which is not that long, uh, I mean, how many people has he gone through as chief of staff? You first of all know that, uh, that it, there's a finite amount of time you're going to be there. Secondly, uh, you're probably going to be asked to, to obstruct justice because that's what they do in that administration. So you, you better get a good lawyer if you get right. the job. So, I mean, you know. Uh,
3: the cost is incredibly high, which is why I th- there was Newt Gingrich apparently was in the White House last night or the reports that he. Might be possibly he's the kind of guy who would know all that and just enjoy the fight. But can you imagine what would happen <laughs> if Newt Gingrich was chief of staff? I mean, so we're at a point now where things are getting laughable as as people who are observing it from just the spectacle point of view. But from the point of view of how many narratives Trump has got to combat and how many things are coming at him, and the best. Tweet storm he came out with this morning, the best he could come up with, was this whole thing that he was doing things on advice of counsel. But his story has been shifting. First, he knew nothing of these hush money payments. And then, you know, and then he, it was this thing of, well, my lawyer did it. And then it was, listen to my lawyer. And then it was, okay, well, my lawyer's a liar. And then it was, okay, well, if we did it, then I didn't know it was illegal because it was advice of counsel. And he's supposed to know. That's why I paid him. And then it was like, well, even if it was wrong, it's civil. I mean, there's so, he's putting out so many arguments uh, that you in public relations, that looks like someone who's like literally in quicksand, right? Flailing their arms and making it worse on themselves.
0: The other element to, to consider here is is Cohen's going to jail based on the convictions, uh, as you mentioned, in the Southern District of New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't even know what he said to Mueller. Right. That uh, there, There's been no re- repercussions from that. And I found it very instructive, Laura, that... Uh, that the Mueller people actually said look at be leaning on this guy because he's been a, a treasure trove of information but the, the, the prosecutors in, in New York were saying no he's he's holding back on us that's why he got the three years yeah. so so clearly there's a mixed message there which in other words he sang like a canary obviously to Mueller but he wouldn't do it in New York and about
3: things that had to do with Russia and the campaign apparently yeah. presumably with Mueller and that was helpful just like Flynn they recommended no prison time for Flynn because he sang like a canary right out of the gate but with the Southern District of New York, I guess to get uh, a recommendation of full immunity, you've got to say everything bad that you've done and everyone you know since the day you were born. And so uh, it's reported that Michael Cohen in that context said, okay, I'll take the hit, I'll do some jail time, but if I do the full thing asking for leniency fully, I'm going to have to possibly implicate members of his family or friends, and he just wasn't willing to go there. Now, If a year in prison within that time frame, if he decides that he really wants to say more uh, and perhaps get a reduced sentence, then that's an opportunity that he has in front of him. So he was being a little bit cagey because the Southern District of New York has different rules than the Mueller uh, probe does. And and that's what's made it so complicated, I think, for people to watch all of this.
0: Let's talk about David Pecker for a second. Uh, He, of course, uh, well, from the National Enquirer and the parent organization, uh, International Media, uh, that they, they've been implicated for some time. We've known about that relationship. Pecker and, and Trump are very good friends and have been for the longest time. But the the, the revelation, I think, that raised a lot of eyebrows, though, Laura, was this safe yes. of, of dirty information about Donald Trump that they've been saving and not printing. In other words, they, it's, it's not as if they were blackmailing him. I don't think they were anyway, but they were trying to protect him. And they admitted that in their statement yesterday. Well, it it's so
3: fascinating. And the payment. They, they also said, well, so they corroborated the fact that that payment to that hush money payment was in fact about the election which is what Cohen has said which makes false that which makes Trump's claims that it had nothing to do with it it was a private matter to protect his family well if he really cared about it he would have paid that off years before right it was done around the access hollywood tape time it was done when it was a critical narrative in the election about his relationship with women and his level of decency and so it was, a, it was a catch and kill. It was a payoff. It was everything they could do. And, and so Pecker has admitted to that. And so has Michael Cohen. So, you know, unlike the John Edwards defense, there's actual witnesses. There's actual corroborating witnesses who are part of this thing, right? So not only have they done that, but they've also said as part of their immunity at um, the Inquirer that they are going to continue to cooperate and they have a safe, a literal Physical safe, full of Trump dirt, Uh, and so if ongoing cooperation means you know you've got to give us what we need, I would be a little bit concerned if I were Trump.
0: David Pecker, uh, and nor anybody else for that matter, Laura sings like this unless the prosecutors have something on them.
3: Absolutely, Uh, and
0: and so clearly, I don't know if they have. I don't know if they have that safe. We we don't know at this stage, but something motivated them to all of a sudden say, okay, I'll come clean, I'll come clean. Well,
3: apparently uh, one report this morning was that Pecker sort of had a freak out when the idea was to reimburse them for the payoff they made to, I believe, McDougal. Uh, and he said, no, this whole thing stinks. We shouldn't have done it. It's a mistake. So I think that they knew that they were tripping over a line back during the campaign when this was happening. Uh, and so the fact that the Southern the Southern District of New York was coming at them and saying, listen, you were part of this, this illegal attempt to uh, influence the election it's a corporate donation. If you're paying $150,000 as a corporate entity to a candidate kind of off the books, it's, you know, they had them. Uh, and so do they have them on more? Who knows? But they've got immunity based on further cooperation, and there's a safe that is, <laughs> that's full of stuff. So this is not conspiracy talk. This is what was in the court filings.
0: It's interesting that the way that the discussion evolved uh, through the course of the day yesterday, and of course there was a revelation about the uh, National Enquirer as well, uh, all of a sudden to not so much about Cohen, but about what are the next steps, uh, a lot of special about who may be charged including the president with mm-hmm. uh, with felony mm-hmm. activity uh, which leads to the question can a sitting president be charged under those circumstances uh, and and uh, we know that the Department of Justice has guidelines those are not mm-hmm. rules those are not laws yeah. so this is this is going to go to court well
3: what's really interesting here is Adam Schiff who's the coming in as the head of the Intel Committee uh, in in January he's a Democrat of course and he said that 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 policy Uh, Position saying you can't indict a sitting president is based on the idea that the executive branch would fall apart and you would lose one of the three branches of government and the ability for checks and balances. So it's a pragmatic uh, decision to say, you know, you can't do it to a president while they're in office. But then there is the counterbalancing uh, consideration, and I'm obviously not a lawyer, but the consideration is that no one is above the law. So if you follow that policy out and you stick to it and Trump gets re-election, then the statute of limitations on these crimes runs out. And so he gets away scot-free by virtue of of being in the highest office in the land and that is against the constitutional value of no one is above the law. So the argument there has very strong, there's a very strong argument that a policy cannot beat that constitutional value, right? Uh, And it may end up in the courts. One of the uh, lawyers that was actually the ethics lawyer for George W. Bush came out last night and said the only real option Trump has is to resign and do a deal on all of these things. Uh, And in that case, you know, it would it would not be what he wants to do, but it would be the way to avoid the maximum legal jeopardy that might be coming at him. If he is right now considered an unindicted co-conspirator because they're deciding not to indict him while he's in office, if he loses in two years and walks out the door uh, and they indict him for all of these crimes, uh, he could be in real jeopardy. If he wins again, that's where the argument of who's above the law. And I must say one other thing. A a woman, a lawyer named Felicia is coming in. Uh, She's been elected and she's coming in to run the Southern District of New York and she said that she's going to do wide-ranging probes on all of Trump's family business, on all of his colleagues. So and this is this legal jeopardy for him is only getting greater, not lessened. And so technically he might be able to beat it on a couple of those different things we just mentioned, but it's getting pretty bad.
0: Well, the concern here, I think that a lot of folks that are looking for some sense of justice here, is if this does go through the courts and ultimately to the Supreme Court, uh, obviously his beer-loving newest appointee, mm-hmm. Kavanaugh, is, is gonna be a, a, at least one vote, maybe the deciding vote to simply say, no, you can't do this.
3: And so that would apply to um, getting him out of office legally, like indicting him yeah. while he's a sitting president. But it has nothing to do with the Southern District of New York and the lawsuits that may plague him for the rest of his life, and then his children's lives. I mean, so the federal question is one. The The fact that by being president, he's opened himself up to all this scrutiny in New York with Michael Cohen and the, and the campaign. I mean, I, I can't help but think that the Trump circles are saying, why did we ever run for president. This has exposed all of us to so much potential legal liability. Uh, there's also the question of impeachment, right? Is there going to be a point where there'll be sufficient senators, uh, Republicans in the Senate who might follow through with impeachment? It depends. Right now they're saying a uh, campaign laws, no big deal, no big deal. Uh, but what, what, what happens when Moore's at it, or when we hear testimony from this Russian person, or when Mueller comes out, is there a point where they see him as being too much of a political liability for their own survival? that they turn on him we've already seen his closest allies turn on him these senators aren't aren't lovers of Trump they just signed on to this Faustian bargain
0: and I know they talk about support and, and it, in the population I mean the, the red hatted people are still they're at 39 to 40 percent they're not going anywhere they don't mm-hmm. care what he does they just love the guy for whatever Sure. Uh, but it's the Senate that you really have to wonder about and, and again I hate and people don't like to go back to Watergate analogies but the tipping point there in in those hearings, uh, it was when the Republicans on that committee, uh, Howard Baker, Lowell Weicker, and others, simply said, "Enough is enough." Mm-hmm. The, the, this is and the, the, the revelation of the tapes, uh, Rosemary Woods and the yes. tapes, et cetera, seemed to be a tipping point. They said, "You know what? This this uh, this stinks." Well, it's uh, that, we're not there yet.
3: It's that famous line where Nixon apparently asked, uh, "What are my votes look like?" And they said, "Mr. President, you don't have ours." Right? This kind of kind of crushing sense of isolation, away from he'd done too much and gone too far. There are some tapes in this whole Trump thing, the the conversation between Cohen and him around the, the hush payments, the tape on the plane where he said he had nothing to do with, knew nothing of any of this, um, It has shown him to be a liar on these questions. Now, is lying a high crime and misdemeanor? No, politicians probably aren't going to see that. Is campaign finance? No, they're probably all afraid that if theirs were scrutinized, they'd have some issues as well. Uh, Is having these illicit affairs on your family? No, because we've seen lots of Washington politicians get caught on that kind of thing. Is it going to be the cumulative effect and the potential political fallout for them uh, that is going to make the decision I think so, yes. I don't think that there's that same sense of decency that would have a president like Nixon say, okay, I'll, I'll bow out, or the decency to say, you know what, you don't have our vote because you've been doing something illegal. I think it's going to come down to raw political calculation, to tribalism, and they're going to decide, hey, uh, we can't survive and we can't get reelected. There's too much here. We've got a bail on this guy. I think that's probably going to be the calculus.
0: Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. Always a pleasure. Thanks for coming in today. you.